All right, today we're continuing with our series that we've been doing called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. And uh, all those words are chosen carefully, and I won't review that. Uh, I would encourage you to think on what each of those words mean, elements, essential, things like that. Um, So we're dealing with the Ten Commandments now, which if you look at Roman numeral one, that gives you the eight titles. And I'm actually going to spend a little time time today by design. Sometimes I spend some time not by design reviewing and waste too much of my time, but uh, I've actually decided to make the Ten Commandments have a part C and a part D when I was going to try to finish them today uh, because uh, what we're going to look at next week, now antinomianism versus theonomy, I uh, made the mistake this morning of you know, normally I have all my studying done when I sit down at uh, 5 a.m. to get started typing up the message. And uh, this morning I uh, decided just to study it a little bit more, and the more, and then it was more and more and more. And then I said, I fairly, uh, just barely got the message done. And uh, I decided I'm going to study that a lot more this week before you get to hear what I have to say about that. As Forrest Gump said, that's all I got to say about that. So, um, so let I actually am going to review a little bit, and but actually not so much. Actually, we're going to kind of work back through the first three outlines, and I'm going to actually hit some points I didn't hit as we were going through them. So this is, you might say, supplemental to what you've heard already if you followed the whole series up till now. Now, um, when we looked uh, at the first three things, God, man, and the Ten Commandments, I want to encourage you to think about uh, something that that in other contexts we have stressed a lot. If you uh, heard my right state, uh, the Gospel of the Kingdom series, or if you've gone through the notes as some of the people being trained for right state evangelism have, um, or if you've heard our CD we actually use for evangelism that has two teachings on it, one of them's called the bad news, and one of them's called the good news. Uh, one of the things I want you to... Uh, to do, and I want to reiterate thousands of times till you're doing it just by habit, is I want you to learn to read the reverse negative. Always look at the text for what it's not saying as much as for what it is saying. Um, you know, last week I sent a few articles to someone about different subjects, and they uh, sent me back, uh, I disagree with this because he's saying such and such and such. And it was because they came from a tradition that assumed that people who have this position are saying such and such, when he specifically wrote three paragraphs stating that he was not saying what they thought he was saying. (laughs) And all I had to do was cut and paste those three paragraphs. He's not saying what you think he's saying, because right here he says he's not saying it very clearly. So when you read, reading comprehension is a big deal. And uh, that's why... uh, you know, if you look at a culture that's getting more and more ungodly, as we have probably started shortly after the Great Awakening around 1770, and it's continued to, uh, our culture has gradually got more ungodly since then. There's been, uh, you know, there's been changes in the rate of sliding and significant events that we can't go into now. But they, the rate of, of becoming ungodly has really increased since the 1950s and then uh, jumped into hyperspace since the 1980s. 
You know, our church is mostly millennials, and most of you have only known culture since the 1980s. That's one of the reasons why, uh, as a culture gets more ungodly, there really are demonic spirits, and they really have agendas, and their agenda is to, is to oppose God. The word Satan actually means the adversary or the opponent. And so uh, part of the spiritual warfare of our time is the enemy wants you not to be very disciplined, especially in reading. The average American today reads uh, two books a year or less. Some people think it's down to one book a year. But that statistic is factoring in all the people who read things like romance novels. So actually, almost all Americans don't read books. Now, the heritage of our country, the whole reason public schools got started was in colonial Massachusetts, they had what was called the Great Deluder Acts. And the Great Deluder Acts uh, was basically saying, how can you come to know God and escape the great deceiver or the great deluder Satan if you can't read much and if you don't have reading comprehension? So not only will I continue, uh, Jason came to my defense once because someone said, why does he have exhortations about why we should read the Bible and get to know it for ourselves like every week for 12 years? And Jason said, well, well, we don't need to hear it anymore. I'll probably stop saying it. Uh, we, you know, we, we have, by the grace of God, become, if we look back, uh, a lot of visitors that come here, Ned Berube has pointed this out, uh, and others say, wow, you guys really have a culture of people taking systematic theology classes and reading the word and, and reading books and so forth. And I think if we look around at the Christianity around us, that's probably true to some degree. But what we kind of need to do is look to biblical and historical norms instead of the culture around us. And we're, you know, we still could uh, be a little bit more serious about our studies is all I'm saying. Now, back to reading the, the reverse negative. You all know that if it, the Bible says that's going to kill, you should be able to interpret from that by now that that means people do kill. And even more importantly, that life is valuable and it's forbidden to take it. And that uh, the blood of Cain cried out for vengeance from the ground, how much more the blood of millions of unborn babies. People wonder why we've had such an increase of natural disasters since the 1990s. And, and of course, uh, the humanists want to put the blame on environmental concerns and so forth, which are probably part and parcel of the whole thing. But our entire godliness, or godlessness, I should say, uh, one, if you look at judgment in the Old Testament, it always starts with natural disasters. It progresses to economic judgment. You know, in our culture is increasingly becoming a debtor nation. Uh, I, we're not as bad as the situation in Greece yet, but hopefully we wake up and say, oh, my God, that's where we're going. Um, and uh, eventually it leads to military conquest because the people lose the, the ability to actually care enough about what, they're, the, the, what the nation represents to defend it. So uh, now if you said stuff like that, like if I was running for president or something uh, crazy like that, 
Um, man, the media would be all over that. What a, you know, for a profit and terrible, you know, I, it'd be like frontal lobotomy or like I were some idiots. But the truth of the matter is the only reason no one gets upset about it is because no one's listening to the church anymore anyway. We have to, you know, produce the kind of church that they can't dismiss us because we're a whole community of people who live a godly way. Anyway, so let's get into this whole reading of the reverse negative. All that's to just say what's talked about today is the good news. Everybody knows that the gospel means good news if they've gone to church at all. Um, and uh, gospel presentations since the 1940s have increasingly been about the good news. And we are wondering why the church is shrinking. When I was a kid, around 89% of Americans identified themselves as Christian, now less than half. In both cases, that's even counting the people who are actually nominal Christians. But still, uh, so probably, you know, probably we may have somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 25% real Christians in America, uh, which is fantastic when you consider where Europe's at, where there's 4% who profess to be Christians. Most people estimate 1% to 2% who are Christian. However, it represents a slide. And I believe the biggest part of the slide, besides, you know, we turn inward, we get holy huddles, uh, churches, you know, since the mega church movement, it's all about how many programs we have for kids and everything like that, instead of, you know, what kind of disciples and families we're producing so forth. But the, the bottom line uh, on this good news, bad news thing is simply this. Nobody wants to hear our good news because nobody knows the bad news, which is true news. That's why we're laboring these first three points, God, man, the nature of man, and the Ten Commandments, because you need to begin to see the gap that exists between God and man and see that it's a hopeless gap. It cannot be crossed. You cannot rescue yourself. You need a rescuer. And he has to rescue you by total grace without any merit of your own. And that rescuing needs to be from real problems. It needs, you know, unfortunately in theology, there developed this distinction called imputed versus imparted righteousness. And conceptually, that's not a bad thing because imputed righteousness leads to imparted righteousness. It's not a bad thing as long as you understand there is no imputed righteousness if it didn't produce imparted righteousness. Because if you, if you repent, if you have faith, if you're granted new life, if you become a new creation, if you're born again, you will be granted a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and that will be satisfied. It'll be satisfied by progressive sanctification and progressive maturation. And your faith will produce works. As James said, you show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Was not our father Abraham, whom the Bible, he, he's writing to a group of people who know that the Old Testament, Jesus, Paul, everyone said Abraham was justified by faith. And, and James says, was not our father Abraham justified by works? Because he's saying his faith was made evident in his works. 
his faith was completed in his works. In fact, every faith in the Bible always requires a step of faith. It wouldn't be quite the same story if you're reading your Bible and Peter goes, Jesus, if that's you, have me step out on the water and walk, you know, walk like you're walking. And, and if the Bible said, Jesus came, and then Peter said, wow, that's theoretically awesome. I really believe that. Wouldn't be quite the same story, would it? Uh, because all faith requires a point of releasing your faith by obedience. And that's how you know the true from the false. So the reason we're laboring uh, the attributes of God, the nature of man, and the Ten Commandments uh, in uh, for, I don't know, uh, about seven, eight weeks, whatever it is now, is you've got to see that the gap is bigger than you think. Because most people that I've worked with that have come into the church through, that have grown up in churches, have sort of a concept in their heart that, yeah, I asked Jesus to come in my life because I need a little self-help I need a little help sometimes with my self-help. <laughs> and, you know, basically I'm pretty good person. In fact, God's kind of even lucky to have someone like me. I mean, I hardly ever miss church, and I'm a big tither, and I, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm a greeter, and I serve the poor, and, you know, I'm awesome. <laughs> that's and, uh, and, the Lord, and the Lord's just saying, "Thank God, I love you." <laughs> you know, he's, I hope he's not crying, but you know, because you know, so we, we really kind of need to see uh, the bad news. Now, there's all sorts of historical reasons why the bad, the the lack of believing the bad news in our culture developed. And here's what we always get backwards. Whenever something develops in the culture, it's because the church gave up the ground first, especially when you're talking about a Christian culture or Christendom that once existed in Western culture that's, that we've been losing ground on, I would argue, oh, coming up on around a little over a thousand years, we've been gradually losing ground. And when you're talking that kind of a deal, uh, we always, part of the reason we lose ground is because we want to say those bad worldly people and they're this, this, and this, and this. What we really need to understand is judgment begins with the household of God and we're the salt of the earth. If the culture is not getting more godly, it's because we aren't loving God as, as zealously or purely or, or biblically or, or according to his commandments and in real ways, and we aren't demonstrating a counterculture by our service of one another, and we aren't serving them as we should. So uh, we're, we're the light of the world. And, you know, people in darkness try to find a switch. And there's lots of people out there that have this general sense that things aren't that great, and there's problems, and there's darkness. Almost none of them think we ought to go ask the Christians the answer to our marriage woes or our raising children woes or our credit card debt problem. 
We'll, we'll be saying hello to Rick Widener later today. And Rick point, posted something on his Facebook yesterday, which uh, we had uh, actually discussed a couple years ago and actually taught about that, you know, you hear, if you read Barna and others, you hear that the divorce rate among Christians is about the same as it is among the world. And however, if you filter that through another way of looking at it, if you look at, uh, if you remember, we talked a lot about this. Uh, I think John was actually the first, or Carla, one of them was the first to point this out to me. It, uh, if you look at it in terms of those who read the Bible regularly and those who go to church regularly, uh, just through those two things, the divorce rate falls off dramatically, and, and, and Christians are doing much better than the world or atheists in their marriages as a general rule. You know, however, that's part of the problem because we don't have covenant community, because we don't have boundaries, and we don't have churches. There's all these crazy definitions of what it means to be a Christian. But the statistics are those who have some of the barometers of being real Christians have better marriages. All right. So, again, with the... um, just a couple of historical roots here. We're going to look at antinomianism. Before we do that, I'm going to actually revert, go backwards and look at the world. You know, as the church began to, to give over to the enlightenment and rationalism and so forth, um, the world, of course, rent, raised up more and more moral relativism and uh, unbiblical views of psychology. In a way, Freud was the father of modern psychology, and he was, a, he was from a Jewish heritage, and he was rejecting Judeo-Christian views of man. And I don't have time to go into great detail, but a great deal of, of what has developed since then in terms of psychology, anthropology, sociology, and so forth is very contrary to what the scriptures would enlighten us on, on the nature of man, and especially... Uh, they, it has to do with kind of a excuse-making, blame-shifting, rationalizing that started in Genesis 3, and so it's just coming out of the heart of fallen man, but I call it the I-can't-help-it-because-my-mother-bit-me-when-I-was-five syndrome. And while I think it's important to understand that your father was an alcoholic or your mom was too controlling and she messed up your head and all, and, and, and you know, we have tons of people that have all these kind of situations. What I want to encourage you is that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, and by the grace of God, you can begin a process of learning how to relate to all that, starting with forgiving those who have despitefully used you and praying for them, uh, moving on to setting boundaries, et cetera, et cetera, going through a healing process and all that needs to happen. Uh, Because... uh, just saying that I came from a bad neighborhood or I was under-advantaged or whatever uh, basically disempowers you. And uh, what the gospel wants to do is empower you. That's why one of our most favorite slogans is acceptance as you are, empowerment to grow. And that's just a definition of grace, really. All right, so, you know, the world... Uh, I don't have time to go into it any further. We've taught on this elsewhere, but I encourage you to to get some kind of working knowledge of history, sociology, economics, whatever. But the, uh, the, the world has increasingly denied the bad news. 
so that they don't see their need for the gospel or a rescuer. And I really encourage you to join me in my crusade, like John taught on that he doesn't want to call uh, same-sex marriage, same-sex, he's calling it same-sex mirage. I agree with that. I would really encourage you to quit saying Jesus is my Savior because it's come to mean so little. Say he's your deliverer. He's your rescuer. He's your only hope. Help me, Jesus. And the Obi-Wan Kenobi. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're our only hope. Help me. (laughs) Jesus, you're our only hope. So uh, that's really important. So the, the, uh, the gap. The church has uh, progressively denied the gap in one of the great ways it's done so is by what we're actually kind of studying right now as it gave up the ground to what's called antinomianism. If you look at the development of antinomianism in, in Western Christianity, in American Christianity, uh, it, it first uh, was proposed, uh, well, it's always been here or there, but it first kind of started to be a movement in the 19th century. It took over the church completely in the 1890s to 1920s. It was popularized by things like the Schofield Bible and Ryrie and all, you know, it was invented. Uh, it kind of started its ascendancy through a guy named J.N. Darby. But as the church began to embrace reductionist views of the kingdom and the gospel, including antinomianism, since that time, we've gone to a place where just anything goes, right? And and I just want to help you understand something. It's going to get worse. Yes, uh, 1973, we legalized killing babies in their mother's womb. Yes, we just legalized same-sex mirage. You know, yes, we've gone to where we have a culture of addiction. Almost everyone has some kind of addiction problem. Uh, what we have, yes, we have problems, but that's because because we have no moral compass without God's law. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I want to help you see that the bad news being denied actually has more to do with the church not knowing the good news, bad news. Continuum. So, with that in mind, what we stressed with God is this: All, lots and lots of of biblical commentators from lots and lots of paradigms and camps will point out today that we have a man-centered Christianity. You can hear that from a lot of different people who would call themselves Reformed or Evangelical or Ancient Church, whatever. We have a very man-centered kind of way of looking at Christianity. It's about what the service will do for me, what the church will do for me, how good the worship band entertains me, how good the speaker is polished. Good luck. At least John's a good speaker. Um, You know, and and all those kind of things, the air conditioning, the light show, uh, because we want to go and consume services. And how many services you provide us not what kind of a disciple I'm becoming and how I'm being equipped to serve. So the whole thing we studied about the attributes of God is really, really important. Secondly, we looked at man. All three of the points we made are huge gospel points. 
man's value because he's the imago day because he's created in god's image man having a purpose one of the ways you can reach people is to just begin to un- help them understand you'll never find any purpose worth living for outside of christ and what you know what millennials want more than any other thing is they want to do what they want to do how they want to do it when they want to do it where they want to do it why they want to do it and no limitations on that and if you can help them begin to see that leads to the ultimate slavery you begin to become afraid uh, uh, you begin to become addicted and, and afraid and confused and eventually you lose your sanity Because there is no harmony with, your, with, with God until you are radically in love with the purpose that God called you for and making sacrifices to, to, to be conformed to that. And if you can help people see that when you're taking them through a process, and I would encourage you, learn how to do a process. You know, John Bradbury and I worked nine months on his becoming Christian Terry Pellegrino and I about nine or 10 months on his becoming a Christian. Void that reaping mentality that you're going to try to pray with them right away. If they immediately receive the word with joy, Jesus said in Matthew 13, then they'll have no firm root in himself. And when, when suffering and persecution arise, they will lose it. Help them work through all of these issues in their heart and in the scriptures over time. And God will show you some vital signs of life as, as he's given it to them. They'll start reading a lot of scripture. They'll start listening to the podcast. They'll start asking better and better questions. They'll start having this hunger and thirst to get their life together and to get free from doing this and that. Which is the, and, and until they want to do that, that they're not really, really, you know, going to be able to even understand the word of grace. Once they really kind of want to really realize they're a mess, they then, man, hit them with all the grace you can because that's their only hope. That's my only hope. We don't just save by grace. We live by grace, and we're sanctified by grace, and we're matured by grace, and it's all about grace. All right, so then the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, as we're going to jump into today, help us... uh, see our, our, the, the, the gap more and more. They help us see the bad news. So we'll get to that on the back side of the page. Real quick on Roman numeral two, we looked a couple weeks ago at where you find the 10 commandments in scripture. Point C there, I added a couple, I took away a couple scriptures and added a couple scriptures to make that point this week so that that way every week you're getting some things even in the review that are new. But you know that we looked at Matthew 22, 34 through 40, where Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments. And I pointed out that when you, the reason I like to cut and paste the New American Standard is because they use that, uh, wherever it's a quote from the Old Testament, it's, it's caps. And uh, most of the Bibles, like ESV and King James, use italics. And because I'm old and I, you know, need corrective lenses and can't read as well, unless the words are bigger, the caps jump out at me more. Uh, But, you know, if you're reading uh, good translations like the ESV or the New King James, they'll be in italics. But in this case, I actually gave you the references Jesus is quoting in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Now, uh, Jesus, last week we dealt with how Jesus 
uh, didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to give us a new creation. He came to write it on our hearts. He came to put it into force. He came to empower us to want to do it and to have the grace to do it. He came to take us from being lusters to actually being in love with him and not wanting to diminish anyone of uh, the opposite sex, or in this case, some days, the same sex in that way. He took us from wanting to be covetous and entitled and in thieves to actually wanting to work, produce, and give. You know, the reason you need to kind of understand what the Bible teaches about money is because is the Bible says, owe no man anything in Romans 13, 8, except to love one another. The problem when you have money problems and when you're in debt and uh, when you can't make ends meet and when you haven't really appropriated work ethic and vocation and, and money management the way you should is you can't love anybody. In fact, you usually haven't asked them to love you. You know, my old boss, a friend of Larry's named Greg Jackson, used to say the problem with not having any money is when you don't have any money, all you can think about is that you don't have any money. <laughs> and, uh, um, so, you know, um, the, these things are all part of the law of God, and Jesus actually came to change our heart and recreate us so that we would not only not steal and not covet, but we would work to serve, work to be providers for others. There's a reason why most men become better workers when they get married. And they become even better workers when their kids start coming because they want to provide. In fact, you know, I wish I was could say I did this or that good job of discipling this or that person and so forth. And, and we teach these things and we try to help single guys and stuff like that. But I noticed like when guys get married, everything we've been trying to disciple them in about money management and finances and work ethic and how to keep a job and stuff, it just, it just seems to click overnight for them. <laughs> Why? Because, because I'm such a great pastor and Bible teacher. That's what, and, and I've spent all those hours on the back porch discipling you. I wish that were true. <laughs> it's because you got a wife to take care of. And in some cases you got kids on the way. And you know they're going to be hungry, and they're going to need new diapers every 10 minutes, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, so forth. And they'll have an insatiable love for toys. There will never be enough Legos, etc. All right, so let's move on. Paul, uh, this is good. Flip over to the backside. Paul's uh, segue here is the gospel is uh, the, the law is our tutor to leave us to Christ. So I'm not going to get into all what I reviewed there today. I'm going to jump down to Roman numeral four today, part three, finally get into today's message. I, I did review a little bit more than I usually do by intention. Cause in the summer we got people coming and going and the attendance falls and rises. So, um, and we frankly encourage you as a church, if, especially if you're involved in our ministries, please try to take your vacations from like, June and mid-July and, and be done with them by mid-August because that's when we really start doing the campus ministries and and uh, 
that's outreach to the school and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so here we go. Uh, the, the ongoing purposes of the law is what I really want to cover today. Three, three reasons in the, you know, this is new material. First, it's our tutor to lead us to Christ, which is to say it's a convictor of sin. Now, we grow up in a culture where we kind of define sin is what the Bible is, and we don't understand that there's a difference between sin and sins. Huge difference. Hopefully you all know this by now. Uh, that's why First John says, if we say we have no sin, versus if we confess our sin and sins. So we are, we've grown up, especially when a culture is antinomian, it tends to focus on shallow definitions of sins that are not necessarily not sins. Sometimes they are but they tend to be more the leaves of the tree or the fruit of the tree. So we might focus on drunkenness or immorality or, and then sometimes we have sins that are really not sins that make, you know, make believe like how you dress or whether you have a beard or long hair, or, you know, whether your dress comes to below your knees or your ankles, you know, again, it's, you know, probably be sinful if what your purpose in dressing is to be seductive and too sensual and, I, we encourage modesty, but I'm not going to define that for you. The Lord will. So sin is, is deeper than sins. It's the root of the tree. It's the trunk of the tree. And we talked, we did a whole teaching on all the things that were, were denying God, hiding from God, all the things that sin is. The law helps us start to see that. I can't go back and go, you know, if you want, go back to... Uh, Part two, probably C, uh, part two C of this series, where uh, and listen to it on the podcast. We have outlines for you if you want them in the back. We always have extra outlines. And look at the seven aspects of man's sin nature that we discussed. The law helps you begin to see this because there's a deceitfulness to sin. 80% of people surveyed believe that they live a life morally superior to others. Almost everyone you talk to thinks I'm a pretty good person. I usually don't even begin to get the truth about people's lust or their anger management issues or their addiction problems or whatever till I've known them for months. <laughs> Why? Because we're not going to lead with, I, you know, yeah, I, I love Jesus, but I have this problem that I get in a fight every other day, or <laughs> I'm abusive to my wife. <laughs> we want to look good because we've grown up in kind of a performance phase. We're not used to that. I can just say, yeah, I'm really screwed up. I'm addicted to this. I'm, I'm afraid of that and so forth. And, and, and to hear, great. That's, that's where I started. Jesus loves you. Let's start working on this together. <laughs> you know, um, so the law helps us begin to be convicted of sin. Let's look at uh, some. Now, that is also in conjunction with an inseparable ministry of the Holy Spirit. The two of them always work together. A person can read the law and miss it all together. And a person can be around great moves of the Holy Spirit where there's gifts and wonders and so forth and miss it all together in terms of beginning to see their, their sin the way God sees it and be able to have the grace to just confess it, which means homo legeo, say the same thing God says about it, quit blame shifting, quit excuse making, quit rationalizing, quit minimizing it, 
and say, yeah, I'm, I'm really a mess, which that is the key to being a member of Grace Christian Fellowship. <laughs> you know, if, you're not, if you don't have problems, you're not welcome here. <laughs> Come here if you're screwed up. Uh, you know, if you're not screwed up, we got churches for that. So Paul says in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Of course, caps mean that it's a quote from Exodus 20. Now, confer, compare that with John 16, 7 through 13, where Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Part The purpose of Pentecost, the reason it was on Pentecost, is because uh, Pentecost was the celebration of when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and made covenant with the people of God. And in Pentecost, when you receive your own personal Pentecost, so to speak, I hate the word personal. When, anyway, when you receive uh, the Spirit in fuller ways, uh, God will write his law upon your heart and your mind, and he will make you more part of the covenant people of God in your heart. You will be less of an individual, radically individualistic Christian because 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. There's a reason why all moves of the Holy Spirit go study what happened in what was called the charismatic movement of the, of the you know, kind of started in 59, but it kind of hit its peak around 67, 71. There was this great desire to be more unified with other kinds of Christians. Because the Holy Spirit, and, the, and, all, and frankly, the kind of community churches that we're part of were all birthed in, the, in that time period. People began to try to experiment with what, what is community and how do we do more than a see you on Sunday and more, less, in a more personable church, less programmatic. Now, that movement almost got wiped out by the, the rise of the mega church programmatic movement and the church growth movement. I'm reading a great book, by the way, that Ned Berube recommended to me called Slow Church, which will really kind of help you see what we're doing here. But anyway, so um, the law helps you come to know sin. That's important. Look at the next verse. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Sin has this way of deceiving us. The proverb says, every man's way is right in his own sight until the Lord weighs the motives. Now, when Paul is talking about not that he would have never come to know sin, what he, one of the things he's saying is this. The Pharisees had taken the law and externalized it. And that's why in John 9 with the, with the blind man, they say to him, you were born entirely in sin and you're talking to us because they believe they weren't. And they believe you did the law by controlling your environment and by re religious ceremonies only and so forth. And they didn't see the issues of the heart. That's why Jesus said, you neglect justice and mercy and the love of God and compassion. And, the, and you should have done all these external things, but you shouldn't have rejected the core root of it. The core root of it is that you're a sinner, and the law should help you see that, and you should 
you should cry out to God through relational grace to become the law. Jesus was the fulfiller thereof. Lest any of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Secondly, the law gives us wisdom, sanctification, and maturation. Now, we all love these verses in 2 Timothy because the doctrine of the plenary inspiration of Scripture comes out of them, that all Scripture is inspired by God. But when when Paul tells Timothy that from childhood he's known the sacred writings that, that give wisdom that leads to salvation, he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament was just starting to be written then. And although uh, there was already, by the time this was written, because it was one of the later books written in the New Testament, there was already some general acceptance of the New Testament writings and general principles that it had to be clearly from an apostle and, and all these things. And Peter had, was uh, about to call, or no, right about when Peter called Paul's writing scripture and so forth. Uh, and you definitely could and should argue that this applies to the New Testament. And somebody theoretically might be able to debate this, that. But nobody could debate that this refers to all the Hebrew scriptures that we now call the Old Testament. Well, kind of wrongly, because the Old Testament wasn't given until Exodus 19. But nevertheless, that when he's saying all the sacred writings, he means Genesis through Malachi. He means all the writings that uh, went through their own canonization process that culminated about 90 BC and all the books that, that the church accepted as the 39 canonical books of the Old Covenant or the Jewish writings. Now, that's so, you know, in this whole... I only read my favorite parts of the New Testament kind of age, um, and I have a degree in Bible, but I only know a, a few proof texts, and I, I know how to go find my preconceived verses to, for my preconceived ideas. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying, Timothy, you've known all the Hebrew writings, and all of them together is what's needed to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. And Jesus makes clear in Luke 24, 24, and Luke 24, 44, and other places that he is the writings of the Old Testament. He is the law and the prophets. So you can't know Jesus if you don't know the law and the prophets. And the prophets are restatements of the law. They're not primarily about prophesying the future and certainly not what they call the end times today. But they are very much calling Israel back to covenant faithfulness to their covenant God according to the covenant commandments given to Moses on the mountain. It's just that no one, God never intended them to answer like they did in Exodus 19 all that you're saying we shall do in a performance way. They should have cried out and said, all that you're saying we could never do, rescue us, change us, create in me a clean heart. And there, there were some in the history of Israel who got that 
And those were the people who wrote the scriptures. <laughs> psalm 51 is a penitential psalm, and it reads very much like any gospel presentation of the New Testament. And so does Psalm 32, one of the seven penitential psalms, because everyone was always saved that was saved by faith. And the working of the Holy Spirit recreating them. Now, I want to read you this quote because I want you to understand that when the when when Paul's talking about the wisdom that leads to salvation, this is very important. I'm going to run over it just by a few minutes. I'm trying to hurry up. Stay with me, and I can focus and get this done in five minutes. He's not talking about salvation from hell, which began to be preached in the 19th century and, again, became the popular notion starting from the 1890s to the 1920s and still very prevalent. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about salvation from yourself. He's talking about salvation from your sin, uh, from what we teach, you know, when we do the, uh, these series, we teach the, your three insurmountable enemies. This, your sin nature, you can't surmount it yourself by performance. The world system, you can't overcome it yourself by performance. And uh, Satan and his demons and so forth, you, they have you pinned. You're, you, you know, they have your arm twisted so painfully, you've got to tap out. And the good news is you can tap out to Christ. Not to trying harder. So uh, here's a quote from Arthur W. Pink. Some of you know him. Uh, you know, we recommend two books on the sovereignty or on the nature of the attributes of God. They're both called the attributes of God, and both authors have the initials A.W. as their first initials. One is A.W. Tozier, and the other one is A.W. Pink. Pink being, uh, from a more Reformed perspective, and, and Tozier more evangelical, I actually uh, uh, would normally think, think that you would like Pink better because he's, uh, he tends to be more precisely accurate, but he also tends to be kind of very dry. And Tozier, you'll find yourself breaking down and worshiping all the time and so forth. And frankly, uh, I only found one sentence in the whole book that one could quibble with. It's a very wonderful book. But here's a quote from Pink. The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present-day evangelist. He announces a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. And that is why so many fatally are, are fatally deceived. For there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire. This is, you know what? Let me finish the quote, then I'll tell you this. Who have not, no, no desire to be delivered from the carnality and worldliness. All the time, we run into young men and young women who grew up in evangelical churches who are really addicted, who are really bound up, who are really having emotional problems, and so forth. And part of it's become because they never really realized that they need a rescuer that becomes their Lord. They needed to totally change kingdoms. They need to become a new creation. They need to be delivered from the domain of darkness and become uh, engulfed in the kingdom of the son of his love. It's not about hell and heaven. That's just the outworking of the trajectory of your life eventually. It's about being saved from yourself. Lastly, uh, the law is part of, uh, is in four cultures and nations. 
Uh, Romans 2.20 says that, that even the Gentiles have the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth written on their hearts and so forth, and I wish I could get into this more. I'll just tell you this. Um, the Ten Commandments decal, uh, in the Greek are called the Decalogue, and, and the Hebrew mindset is they're not just commandments, but they're ten sayings, and they're ten, um, ten counsels of wisdom. Of course, they're commandments because they come from an authoritative God. That's why they be, but actually, they're just 10 ways of life, 10 ways of thinking and, and relating and being with God and, and doing life. And so, um, therefore, all nations, and God blesses nations or judges nations based on how they're living accordingly, according to their. And if you study the prophets, you'll see that the prophets were sent to three groups of people. One, Israel, two, Judah, and three, nations. And that's why Jonah fled from the Lord and got in the fish in the first place, because he didn't want to go to Nineveh to, teach the, to, to preach to the Babylonians. Because is, one of Israel's great sins is they were selling things in the court of the Gentiles, so to speak. That's why Jesus turned the money tables over. The, the Israelites, time after time after time, hated the Gentiles and refused to extend the the presence of God. As Ray Nether always like to say, "We're you know I'm, how's he say it? Um, I'm uh, mediate the presence of God." Things, uh, you know, they refused to mediate the ways of God, the presence of God, the law of God, and the and the salvation of God to the nations around them. And they got turned inward, and they had programs and buildings and nice things and synagogue and so forth, but they weren't getting out there with it. And that's actually one of the, if you study Deuteronomy 28 or any of the other, all the way through the prophets that are built on that, that is one of the main reasons. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid they would hear the message and repent and that God would spare them. And he wanted God to destroy him. So I wish I could develop that uh, idea more, but the commandments are for society. They're for the nation's. They apply to, to everyone. You, can, you, can, you can't break God's laws. God's laws will break you. They'll do that individually. They'll do that as families. They'll do that as, as, as societies. They'll do that as nations. And if you throw off the law of God, you will progressively enter into his wrath because his wrath is in the hopes that you'll turn and cry out for salvation. Amen.